This evening's episode of Ah Tonic is sponsored by Ravensburger Games. Looking for some spooky board game fun for the family this Halloween? Check out Horrified Universal Monsters. Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, and other iconic horror film monsters descend upon your village to wreak havoc, hunt heroes, and terrorize villagers in this cooperative board game. Work together to defeat the monsters before the town is destroyed for good. Horrified Universal Monsters by Ravensburger Games. The stakes have been raised. Visit Ravensburger.us. Look for a link in the show notes. Shudder when your phone switches from Do Not Disturb to Just Plain Disturbing. Prank a colleague with a phone call from your mind. Agree to the charges from a collect call from beyond the grave. All this and more weird history, strange science, and the paranormal. It's worse than a scam call. It's calling from inside the house. It's this week's terrifying telephonic tincture of Odd Tonic. Welcome to the parlor. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Maxwell. Please have a seat, dear guest, and help yourself to some tea. Uh, Jennifer, love. Yes, my love. May we assume, by the black pointed hat you're wearing, (laughs) that you're ready for the holiday autumn season. Yes. (laughs) As you can see, I've been casting a spell on the parlor in preparation for all Hallow's Eve. Mm -hmm, And I love it. The uh, satin bats in particular. The parlor looks completely perfect in a riot of autumn leaves, pumpkins, and our resident black cat, Amulet. I agree. And thus, this episode kicks off the odd tonic countdown to Halloween. Yes. As the veil between the world of the living and the realm of the dead gets ever thinner, we thought it would only be appropriate to investigate one of the many facets of communicating with the dead. And as an added treat, the book we're pulling from the parlor shelf tonight is out of print. So its stories are as rare as spotting a free-floating full-torso vaporous <laughs> apparition. <laughs> All right, dear guest. Let's get spooky. There are many instruments said to aid in the communication with the dead. Ouija boards, tarot cards, spirit boxes, digital recorders, and even people themselves in the form of mediums. Thomas Edison verified that even he had been working on a device of his own to speak with the deceased just before he himself passed on. But perhaps all of these contraptions are just making it hard on ourselves. Perhaps the best tool for speaking to the dead is already in our homes and nestled inside our pockets. In the late 1970s, a well-known Hollywood television and film actress was documented while sharing a family secret anonymously. Due to the nature of the story, she didn't want to cause upset with those involved. So, we'll call this actress 
Patricia Adams. When Patricia was eight years old, her family lived in Texas. Her mother had a very dear friend who had a long-standing joke with her own family. When any of her grown children called home and asked for $20, she knew that they were planning to come back home for a visit. As her tale begins, Patricia tells us that her mother's friend had a daughter who was away at college. Like most students, she'd return home for the winter holidays, but during her third year of college, while driving back home, she was killed in an automobile accident. Patricia continues the story. A couple of years later, we were over at the home of this friend of my mother's for Thanksgiving, which was one of the holidays for which her daughter used to come home. The telephone rang. I was at the age when the grown-ups were away in the living room and the kids were always running around. I would answer the phone. I picked it up and I heard a long-distance operator say, I have a collect call. She mentioned the name of my mother's friend and she mentioned the name of the daughter as the caller. This threw me a little bit, even as a child, I said. Just a minute. I went and got my mother's friend. She came to the phone. I stood watching her because I had heard the name and I thought that maybe somebody was playing a joke on me or her or something. She listened on the phone, turned absolutely white and fainted. Later on, I heard what happened. She had heard her daughter who had been dead two years, speak to her. She said the same thing she always did before she came home. Mommy, it's me. I need $20 to get home. She said she had recognized the voice. They called the phone company, but they had no record of any phone call. This is but one of several remarkable stories that we'll be sharing tonight from the 1979 book, Phone Calls from the Dead, by D. Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayliss. The book represents the culmination of two years of research on the topic, drawn from cases personally investigated by Rogo and Bayliss, with direct quotes drawn from written accounts, taped interviews, and phone conversations. Scott Rogo was the lead author on Phone Calls from the Dead, and it proved to be one of his most popular publications. Rogo was a parapsychologist, a writer of 20 books, and served as a consulting editor for Fate magazine, for which he wrote a regular column and 100 articles. Throughout his career in the 70s and 80s, he advocated greater involvement by both researchers and skeptics in parapsychological research. Rogo and Bayliss first learned about the phone call phenomenon in 1967 after meeting an enthusiastic believer in seances named Marge. After attending a few with her, the researchers proclaimed the seances to be terribly hoax-ridden and openly doubted whether communication with the dead was even possible at all, to which Marge replied, Well, then how do you explain this? A friend of mine once received a phone call from her dead son, he called and said, hello, mother, and then the line went dead. No pun intended. <laughs> because Marge could offer no proof outside of her trusted friend's word, the researchers had no interest in following up. It wasn't until 1974, nearly a decade later, 
that Rogo and Bayliss began an official investigation into the phenomena. By then, they had discovered several people who claimed to have received phone calls similar to what Marge had described. It didn't hurt that Rogo had encountered his own experience, too, but we'll get to that later. Once their research was underway, they began to realize that these mysterious events represented a specific type of paranormal phenomenon. They became so engrossed with the subject that by mid-1977, it had become the focus of their work. Uh, sorry Marge, uh, here's a nice fruit basket. (laughs) Ultimately, the authors conclude that these occurrences are real and may be more common than you could ever imagine. Ready for more stories? Am I wearing a black pointy hat? (laughs) (laughs) Then let's turn down the lights. But don't put your phone on silent. You never know who is going to call. Don and Ethel Owens certainly didn't. Don tells his story like this. Until late October 1968, I had a very close friend. Lee Epps and I were closer than brothers, and it seemed that when he wasn't at our house, we were at his He was a bachelor with a good-paying job he had held for years. While he had no money worries, he never had much luck with the women. Anyone could see he was a lonely man who valued his few friends. He didn't make friends easily, for he was pessimistic and a little inclined to complain. But we liked him and understood him. He was fond of my wife Ethel and she of him. He called her sis and often did little things for her. Lee and Don once lived in the same neighborhood, but when Lee moved to another area and as the years rolled by, they gradually drifted apart. After Lee's move, a casual dinner engagement, an evening out, or a telephone conversation was the only contact they had. Don continues. At 10.30 p.m. on October 26, 1968, while I was out, a phone call came from Lee and it was urgent. My wife answered and immediately recognized his voice. What little he said or the way he said it greatly upset her. She tried to call him back a few minutes later, but got no answer. The message he had given her was this. Sis, tell Don I'm feeling really bad. Never felt this way before. Tell him to get in touch with me the minute he comes in. It's important, sis. The message upset me as much as it had Ethel. I called his number, but got no answer. I called him again and again. No answer. That evening, I learned later, Lee had been lying in a coma in Mercy Hospital, less than six blocks from our place. He died at 10.30 p.m. at the time he had called our home. My wife talked to him and readily recognized his voice. No doubt about it, Lee made that telephone call. Hmm. So the way in which Lee was feeling bad was that he was suddenly (laughs) non-corporeal and standing beside his dead self? (laughs) God, Zeus. (laughs) Poor Lee. The phone a friend option didn't work out for him in this situation. (laughs) 
you kind of get the sense these people were from another era, yeah. a brand of folk who just didn't communicate or disclose what they were personally going through very well. Yeah, I think that Lee had a very narrow window to let everyone know what was going on, and he chose to say that he was feeling bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, communicating on a completely different level is quite evident in our next story, involving businessmen from 1965. <laughs> they were a unique animal. In 1965, Dr. Walter Upoff was teaching at the University of Colorado. His secretary, a conscientious and dedicated woman, was named Mrs. Iris Brace. Iris suffered a gallbladder attack, and her doctor advised her to have the organ removed whenever convenient. <laughs> it's like a drive-thru service. <laughs> Anytime it's truly convenient. <laughs> right. She planned to do this while her boss, Dr. Upoff, was away on a short business trip. Before he left, he asked her, Would you be sure to remind me to call the insurance firm of Trailbush and Hedgecock to ask one or both of them to speak on personal life insurance programs at the Steelworkers Institute? She promised she would. Unfortunately, the loyal Mrs. Brace did not survive her surgery. Hmm. Dr. Upoff later recounts, I spent Monday morning at my office working on final plans for the Steelworkers Institute. I remembered to call the insurance firm, and I placed a call at about 10 a.m. Glenn Hedgecock answered the phone, and I had just begun to explain why I had called when he said, Just a moment. My other phone is ringing. I waited a few minutes until he resumed. Your secretary just called to remind me that you wanted me to participate in your institute program. Dumbfounded, I said, I'm sorry, but she died last week. It was his turn to be surprised. Well, all I can say is, that's for you to figure out. <laughs> when I told her that you were on the other phone, the voice said, in that case, I'll consider the message delivered. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Mrs. Brace was extremely dedicated. <laughs> kind of gives new meaning to above and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's with this? That's for you to figure out. I'm working on the thrush pecker account. I don't have time for the eternal mysteries of life. <laughs> well, one day he will. <laughs> one day we all will. <laughs> and you know, when we do, let's hope we have someone as considerate as Carl in our lives. Carl was his maternal grandmother's favorite grandchild, and together they shared a close bond. When Carl became a teenager, he was often out of the house, visiting the home of one of his friends. By this time, his grandmother had lost most of her hearing, and Carl worried about her. Wanting to be available if she ever needed help, he devised a system. Carl provided his grandmother with a list of all of his friends' home phone numbers, with the instructions to call them if she required assistance. What a good boy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she would call any place I went, Carl later said. She'd merely dial the number. She wouldn't know if it rang or if anyone answered. She would just keep repeating over and over maybe four to six times. This is Carl's grandmother. Would you please send him home? I need him. Or something to that effect. It was a regular occurrence for me. It happened all the time. When Carl was 16, his sister was able to spend more time with their grandmother, and that was the last time Carl received a call from her while at a friend's house. Sadly, when he was 18, his grandmother passed away, 
at 80 years old. Two days after she died, Carl was at the family home of a new friend, Peter. Being a new acquaintance, Carl had not discussed with Peter or Peter's family that his grandmother had passed away. Peter recollected that night, many years later. We were downstairs, talking or something, and I heard my mother on the upstairs phone. Not arguing. I don't recall any words, but I know my mother's tone, and she was getting pretty miffed. Mm. Neither of the boys paid much attention until she called down to Carl. There's an old woman on the phone. She says she's your grandmother, and she says she needs you. She just keeps saying it over and over again. In all my life, I never seen anybody turn as white as Carl turned, Peter remembers. He was like marble white, and he did my cellar stairs in three bounds. Carl flew to the telephone. When I grabbed the phone, he said, no one was on the line. But this was not the end of the attempted communication. Later that night, Carl answered several more calls at his own home. Each time, there was no sound on the other end of the line. Peter had gone home with Carl that evening and witnessed everything. While the calls could, of course, have been due to some sort of technical malfunction, Carl couldn't remember it ever happening before. He had the definite sense that his grandmother had continued to try to reach out to him that night. (laughs) Wow. Such a great story. Yeah. Rogo and Bayless were able to organize the nature of the phone call phenomena into three categories. First is the crisis call, a call made by the deceased who urgently wants to speak to someone. This event usually happens a short time after someone dies, and the person who answers the call often doesn't realize that the caller is dead. However, these calls have often been known to happen a few months later, too. Another is the intention call, where a message or even a warning is delivered. This also includes calls with no voice on the other end, the intention inferred by the date on which the call is received, anniversaries or holidays, for instance. The last is the answer call. Here's a prime example from the book. Marie D'Alessio had a terrible nightmare about her friend. Lana, which left her shaken. Upon recounting her dream to her husband, he suggested that she call Lana for reassurance and to make sure that she was all right. Marie took her husband's advice, and Lana answered the call immediately. She admitted that she had indeed been sick and even hospitalized. She then added that she had been temporarily released, but was due to return to the hospital the next day. Marie replied that she would like to come and visit her, but Lana asked her not to. However, she promised to call her back later. She never did, and as time went by, Marie's concern returned, and she tried to reach her friend again. Several attempts were made, but no one picked up at Lana's residence. Marie called Lana's neighbor, who sadly informed her that Lana had passed away. She added that Lana's husband was away on business, but could give her more information when he returned. When they finally spoke, Lana's husband said that she must have been mistaken about talking to his dead wife. Because she had passed away a full six months before Marie claimed to have talked to her. Marie's husband, who was present when she made the call to Lana, verified the 
conversation. I think it's interesting how Lana was heard on the first call, but not on any of the subsequent calls. Yeah. What was going on in that moment? Mm. Presuming that Marie could absolutely confirm that it was Lana's voice that she was hearing. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was some kind of time slip? Or do you think that Lana was just forever waiting to be taken back to the hospital? I don't know if Lana actually ever got a reprieve from the hospital. I think that was some kind of ghost excuse to be able to be on the phone. I don't know. <laughs> ghost hall pass. As if Marie would be able to verify that or something. <laughs> right? Do you have your ghost hall pass? <laughs> Behaving awkwardly, even in the afterlife. <laughs> that would be us. <laughs> Well, when we return, we'll continue sharing stories that redefine the term cold call. (laughs) Plus, we'll look at surprising instances that suggest that the mysterious force behind these phone calls may be more local than we realize. Don't hang up just yet. Odd Tonic will be right back. Thank you for your patience. Hold, please. Hello, and thank you for listening to Odd Tonic. If you'd like to support the show, you can do one or more of the following. Press 1 and leave a kind review on iTunes. It'll help other oddlings know what they are missing. Press 2 to visit us on the socials. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Odd Tonic Society. Press 3 to watch, subscribe, and comment on our YouTube videos. Find our channel by searching for Odd Tonic. Press 4 to support us on Patreon. Earn some spooky swag while you directly pledge to this paranormal production. Visit us at patreon.com slash oddtonic. Your call is important to us. Stay on the line and a podcast host will be with you shortly. Welcome back. We've been exploring Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayless's book, Phone Calls from the Dead, a bizarre and chilling compilation of apparent telecommunication with the deceased. But should we take these calls at face value? Is the phenomena as simple as a departed soul somehow managing to make a call from the afterlife? In the book, Scott Rogo brings up some interesting factors to consider while determining the nature of the intelligence behind the calls. We mentioned in the first half of the show that Rogo himself had experienced a strange phantom call, which he says was the first real impetus behind his investigation. Rogo tells the story in his own words. It was four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. I knew that I had to put a phone call to the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute, but I was lying comfortably on my living room couch, almost dozing, and I just couldn't bring myself to break my inertia and get up. So I just rested there, listening to the radio. Two hours later, at six o'clock, I was still sitting right there on the couch, feeling just as snug, and I still had no intention of getting up and doing anything, much less make a call, when the phone rang. To stifle its angry wail, the only thing I could do was to answer it. When I picked up the phone, I was surprised to hear the voice of a young research assistant who worked at the Institute. I'm answering your message, he said. What 
message? I asked a bit puzzled. Uh, the one you made to us at four, he continued, equally bewildered. What do you mean? I didn't call you, I said, a bit nastily. Oh, I just got in and I found a message on my desk that you called at four and wanted us to return your call. To say the least, I was thunderstruck. Indeed, I had wanted to phone UCLA at four o'clock that day, and I had actually wanted to speak to this assistant's boss, but I most assuredly had never made the call. On questioning the assistant further, I learned someone had called the office and had spoken to one of the institute volunteers, as most of the regular staff were out of the lab. The caller had left my name and said that I wanted the call returned. And that was the end of the incident. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is really reminiscent of Vardaga phenomenon, Mm. where the ghost or doppelganger of a person who is still very much alive appears in locations either nearby or at vast distances from their physical body. And in some story, the double will actually speak and impart needed information. Right. And when the real version of the person is questioned about the matter, they often say that they were in some way thinking about the place or event where the doppelganger was seen. Intention was certainly a part of it. So what do you think? Do you think that Rogo was just involuntarily using some similar form of psychokinesis Mm. during his relaxed state made the call? Yeah, PK might just be us unwittingly playing cosmic jokes on ourselves. <laughs> Why are you PKing yourself? Why are you PKing yourself? <laughs> Listeners who caught our episode on the Philip experiment know what we're talking about. Mm. Human consciousness can create some amazing parlor tricks. Yes, it's true. And you know, when your emotions are overrun with grief mm. and the desire to talk to a loved one just one last time, mm. It's easy to connect these phone calls with some kind of unintentional psychic action. Of course, that doesn't cover the cases where the person receiving the call doesn't even realize that Mm -hmm. the caller is dead yet. Yeah, true. Rogo and Bayless themselves couldn't nail down a consistent explanation regarding the phenomena either. Mm. Despite all their charting, diagramming, and crunching data, Mm. some factors pointed to one answer, some pointed to another, and some pointed to all of them. And as you may have noticed, dear guest, when it comes to the paranormal, answers don't come easy if at all. (laughs) (laughs) They really don't. Well, speaking of our dear guest, they may be wondering what new insights on ghostly calls have been made in the era of the mobile phone. Mm. Is the phenomena increasing? Sadly, if Scott Rogo has an answer, he would have to tell us while being literally on the other side of his phone call investigation. Scott died in 1990, found stabbed in his apartment. A conviction in his death was made but overturned, and his murder was never solved. So, in Scott Rogo's honor, we've looked to see if there have been more recent accounts of phantom phone calls. And yes, yes there have. And we've saved these best stories for last. In 2008, A Metrolink commuter train collided head-on with a Union Pacific freight train in Los Angeles, California. The commuter train ran through a red signal when the train's engineer failed to obey a red stop signal and continued on into a single-track area that the Union Pacific train was already cleared to use and traveling towards them. 
At least one passenger on the MetroLeague train reported seeing the freight train moments before impact as they came around a curve. The collision was horrendous. The crash caused the commuter train's second passenger car to telescope into the first car, which then caught fire, with the other cars derailing and falling over. Sadly, the mass casualty event resulted in 25 lives being claimed. Charles E. Peck was on that fated commuter train that day. His fiancée, Andrea Katz, was on the way to pick up Charles from the station when she heard about the crash, immediately concerned for Charles. En route to the scene, her cell phone rang, and the caller ID showed that it was Charles. Relief washed over her as she answered the call. Her desperate hello was only met with static. After the crash, Charles's phone placed calls to his son, sister, brother, and stepmother during the 11 hours that followed the deadly accident and rescue searched for survivors. With each call answered by his family, all were unable to actually talk to him. All they heard when they answered his calls was static. When they tried calling him back, Peck's phone went straight to voicemail. Andrea used the opportunity to communicate with her fiancé, to let him know that she was with him no matter what. As the calls continued, they hoped he was still alive. As it became clear that the rescuers weren't finding any more survivors in the crash, their rescue efforts turned into a mission to recover bodies. But when yet another call came from Charles's phone, they decided to trace it to find his location. Because of his call, the rescuers returned to searching the first car, hoping to find him alive and possibly trapped under some rubble. Andrea said, Rescuers were so excited. They had this incredible adrenaline rush at the thought that they might possibly find another survivor. We gave them a description and they spent hours looking for him. When they found Charles Peck in the first train car, they determined that he had died on impact. Coroners concluded there was no way Charles could have possibly made those calls while still alive. In all, 35 calls were made from Charles's phone to his loved family members. Police never revealed if Charles's phone was found. And the engineer who was found to be at fault? It was determined that he missed the red signal warning against the single track area because he was distracted while texting. Hmm. I remember hearing about that story mm. when it first appeared. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And it's a reminder to everyone to put their phone down while driving. <laughs> Definitely is not worth it otherwise. And as a bookend to our very first story tonight, we're going to leave you with this tale from another famous film and television actor. Michael T. Williamson appeared on Celebrity Ghost Stories in 2010 and told a story about an unsettling phone call that he received. Michael T. is probably best known for playing Bubba in Forrest Gump. Michael T. says, This happened in the early 80s in Los Angeles, California, when I was a struggling actor. People who know me know I stop by my mom's house a couple times a week. Everyone who knows me knows that about me. One day, I gave her a call, and she didn't answer the phone, so I stopped by. My mom met me outside her house and told me to get back in the car and go home. It was really weird. I was like, Mom, are you okay? She was like, yeah, baby, I'm fine. Just get back in the car and go home. I'll talk to you later. 
Call me when you get home. So I called her when I got home, and she said everything was fine. A couple of days later, I stopped by her house again, and like clockwork, she met me outside and told me, get back in the car and go home. I was like, Mom, what's wrong? Are you okay? She was like, I'm fine, baby. You cannot be here now. I was like, is somebody bothering you? She said, no, baby, just get in the car. If you see any of your friends, don't stop. Go home. I asked my mother if there was anyone in the house. She said, no, Mama wants you to go home. So I looked at her and I was like, okay, Mom, all right. I was tempted to push my way past her and go in the house to see if everything was okay, but I would never disrespect my mom. My mother is not a weak or frail person. She's a very strong woman. A couple of days went by and my phone rang. It was my mom and she asked me if I could come over and see her. I was like, Mom, are you okay? She was like, when can you get here? All the way over, I had butterflies in my stomach, and I was like, what's going on? What's wrong with my mother? When I got to her house, she let me in this time. Something was definitely wrong. It was so thick in the air that you could cut it with a knife. I had to try and stop myself from shaking because my nerves were on edge. There were some guys in the neighborhood I had grown up with. One of the kids was named Adrian. We were best friends. Adrian always found a way to do things the wrong way. I was able to forgive him for a lot of the dumb stuff he did. He was the kind of kid who would go off and do some dirt on his own and come back and you'd see that he had a new watch or a new necklace or something. It seemed like something was driving him to do wrong. And even when you snapped him out of it, he couldn't tell you why he did it. I could always find a way to talk him into doing the right thing because I knew even then what karma was all about. I understood spiritual law, that what goes around, comes around. We sat down, and my mom said, I'm sorry to tell you, Adrian got killed last night. His cousin shot him and killed him in the middle of the street. I was just stunned. She said, he had been by here looking for you, and I saw death on him. My grandmother could actually see spirits and my mother could see death on a person before they died. She didn't want our paths to cross because she saw death on him so strong she knew there was nothing she could do to turn that tide and he was definitely going to die soon. I was like, Mom, maybe I could have helped him. She was like, no, there was nothing you could have done. Death was on him too strong. His time was up. I went back to my apartment, and I was really disturbed over the whole thing. I sat in disbelief for a long time, and I kept thinking, what if I had seen him? What if things had been different? The following evening, I called my girlfriend, and she came over for dinner. Just as we were sitting down to eat, the phone rang, and my girlfriend answered it. 
all of the color went out of her face, and I knew something was wrong. She said, It's a collect call from Adrian. I took the phone and said, Hello? The voice on the other end of the phone was the voice I knew all of my life from childhood. This was my friend, Adrian. He called me, Mike! Mike! There was only three or four people in my life who called me Mike. Because I hated being called that, and right off the bat, I knew his voice. It was him. He said, Help me! Help me! You know how to help me! I was like, Adrian, where are you? He said, They're trying to take me inside. I ran away. Help me. You gotta help me right now before they get back. I could hear all these voices screaming and a sound like a roaring fireplace where you could hear the heat cut through the air. I could hear him begin to fight and he was being overpowered. He kept screaming, No! 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 Let me go! I'm not going! He was screaming my name. Mike! 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 Then the phone just went dead. I stood there for a long time. It's very hard to be on a phone with someone you can't help. I talked it over with my girlfriend, and she told me to call the operator to see if they could trace the call. They couldn't. The operator told me that if it was a collect call, it would be reflected on my bill. I knew the date, the time, everything. But when the phone bill came, that call wasn't on my bill. This was a phone call that I received from the other side. He kept saying that I knew how to help him, and to this day I'm still baffled as to exactly what he meant. I really don't know how I could have helped him. I wish I did, but I don't. The phone call was a message to me because I was taught that hell is a real place. There's always consequences. Had I been with him when death came, it could have taken me as well. I know that the spirit world is very real, but I would just say, don't be afraid. Just make sure that you walk in the light, because that's the only protection you have. (sighs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) These stories leave you with so much to think about. Ah, yeah, particularly that last one. Yikes. (sighs) Well, what do you think, my love? Do you think you would ever like to be the recipient of one of these phantom phone calls? <laughs> oh, I immediately think yes. I mean, what a gift. Yeah. But the majority of the calls we talked about, I mean, the simple static and the screaming while being dragged to hell aside, <laughs> <laughs> the calls just have this empty feeling to me mm. as if... I'd be holding on to something that really didn't give me much closure. I, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to explain. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Because unless you receive the call where a loved one clearly states that they're okay and mm. happy, your mind might wander, mm. right? Wondering if maybe they're not okay. And that's a terrible thing to have to contend with, added, you know, with your grief. Yeah, but then... I think that's the impetus behind many of these calls. I think sometimes the dead are reaching out because they're in shock over mm. their circumstances and they just honestly don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, 
maybe this episode is a strange but <laughs> valuable PSA for all of us. <laughs> if you get a call like this, tell them that you love them and to look for the light. <laughs> Definitely good advice. Well, with that, I think it's time to hang up on this edition <laughs> of Odd Tonic. Please visit us at patreon.com slash odd tonic if you want to support the show and earn some spooky show swag in the process. Oh, and be sure to visit us on social media. We are holding giveaways for amazing Halloween digital decorations from Atmos Effects all month long. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Odd Tonic Society. And tell your friends about the podcast. It's a perfect time of year mm. to binge on all of our odd episodes. And as always, if you have an unexplained experience to share with us, please send it to the parlor at oddtonicsociety.com. We'll be back next week with more weird history, strange science, and paranormal peculiarities. This is, dear guest, goodbye for now. But remember, if you're ever jolted awake at 3 a.m. to the shrill ringing of your phone, its screen illuminating your bedroom with a pale, sickly light, and you answer only to hear an unearthly static while the display informs you that the caller is unknown. Don't worry. It's just us. Good night.